WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You're tuned into Exposure, Michigan State's student-run news show here on Impact 89 FM every Tuesday night from 7 to 8 p.m. I'm your host, Daniel Rizal. We first go to my interview tonight with James Conwell and Catherine Moss from the Associated Students of Michigan State University, where we discuss ASMSU and the upcoming student tax vote. We then go to Impact reporter Audrey Matus as she reports on narrating the new normal. From there, we'll go to my interview with Ignacio Andrade from the Office for Inclusion and Intercultural Initiatives as we discuss Project 6050 and the MSU debate team collaboration on discussing the DREAM Act. We'll finish off the show with the rebirth of a new segment here on Exposure with Michigan Storytellers, and we'll leave that off with a discussion by Quinn Hoffman and Impact reporter Sarah Tarico discussing Michigan Storytellers, followed by a story done by Rebecca Small. But first... Here is your weekly Impact Update. Now it's time for an update from Impact News. Exposure will continue in just a moment, but first, here's your weekly Impact Update. Since December of 2013, according to BBC News, there have been more than 23,500 cases of Ebola reported in Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea. Nearly 9,700 of these have resulted in death as of the 25th of February. Vice President of Sierra Leone, Samuel Sumana, has decided to quarantine himself for 21 days after the Ebola-caused death of one of his bodyguards, John Karoma. He is the country's first senior government figure to subject himself to a voluntary quarantine. It was originally thought that the virus was on the decline in Sierra Leone, but recently there has been an increase in confirmed cases. Officials in the three countries have pledged to achieve zero Ebola infections within the next two months. Now we go to Michaela Harris with the inside scoop on TEDx at MSU. This week, TEDx MSU will host an independently organized TED Talk titled The Will. The event will feature a lineup of presenters, including faculty, students, alumni, and other members of the university discussing their past experiences, current projects, and future visions to promote inquiry within the MSU community. In addition to the presentations focusing on the willpower of Spartans, attendees will have the opportunity to interact with the innovations presented and network at an Afterglow event held in the Wharton Center's Jackson Lounge. The Will Conference is scheduled to take place Wednesday, March 4th, from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Wharton Center Cobb Great Hall. With your entertainment update, I'm your Impact reporter, Michaela Harris. We'll now go to Audrey Matus with your national news update. For the third year in a row, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky was a victor of the 2015 Conservative Political Action Conference presidential straw poll. This Saturday... The Kentuckian senator beat out another 2016 hopeful, Scott Walker, championing the Wisconsin governor with 25.7% of the votes. In his speech Thursday, Walker stated his strong stance on foreign affairs. But what caused outrage back home was his comparison of passing anti-union legislation in Wisconsin to taking on Islamic State militants in Iraq and Syria. In his speech, Paul assured hard-right audience members that he intended to defend his country without exception from terrorist groups and jihadists despite his non-interventionist reputation. Paul took out big names in the polls with a Tea Party favorite from Texas, Ted Cruz, with 11.5% of the votes, known adversary to Obamacare Dr. Ben Carson, who took 11.4%, and Florida Senator Jeb Bush, with only 8.3%. A bigger voice that seemed to be not as present at CPAC was New Jersey's Chris Christie, who took a meager 2.7% of the votes, placing the governor behind American businessman and TV icon Donald Trump. Keeping you up with national news, I'm Audrey Matus. Up next, we have Aaron Martinez discussing the upcoming trial on a local murder case. A 43-year-old Lansing man with a lengthy criminal record was charged in connection with the 2014 death of a 27-year-old Lansing man whose body was found in a yard. George Edward Whitfield III was charged with murder and weapons offenses in connection with the death of Bobby Duval Brown. Whitfield was arraigned in the 54A District Court, charged with murder, firearms possession by a felon, carrying concealed, and felony firearm in connection with Brown's death. Whitfield previously served prison sentences for weapons offenses in Ingham County, according to the Michigan Department of Corrections. 
The weapons-related incidents occurred between 1994 and 2005. He is currently lodged in the Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility in Ionia County for a parole violation, according to court records. Brown's badly decomposed body was found by landscape workers in the afternoon of September 23rd in the backyard of a home in the 900 block of Porter Street in North Lansing. The workers were hired to mow the lawn. Police at the time said Brown's body had been in the yard as long as several weeks. A preliminary hearing which determines if there is enough evidence for a trial is set for this Thursday. Reporting for the Impact Update, I'm Aaron Martinez. I'm Brittany Flowers, and this has been your weekly Impact Update. Now, back to Exposure. To start off the show tonight, we'll go to my interview with James Conwell and Catherine Moss from the Associated Students of Michigan State University to discuss ASMSU and the upcoming student tax vote for Impact 89 FM and RHA. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM with your host, Daniel Rizal. I'm here with James Conwell and Catherine Moss from the Associated Students of Michigan State University here today to discuss ASMSU and the upcoming student tax vote. Thank you for coming in today. Hey, thank you for having us. Now, uh, how about we introduce yourselves? Um, I'm going to start with you, James, with uh, what you do at ASMSU. Sure. Uh well, you said my name is James Conwell. Uh, I'm the president of ASMSU. I'm a senior human biology major in Lyman Briggs College. Uh, I'll be graduating this May and starting at the MSU College of Osteopathic Medicine in June. I'm Catherine Moss. I'm the vice president for internal administration with ASMSU. Um, my role usually consists of being the undergraduate advisor to the class councils, as well as being the parliamentarian for the association. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, how long has ASMSU been a part of Michigan State? Uh, it's been a part of Michigan State since uh, 1964. Um, we're in our 51st session right now of ASMSU. Um, it actually started as a uh, group of students that came together from all the major governing groups, so Interfraternity Council, Panhellenic Council, uh, the co- uh, Student Housing Cooperative, um, and the Residence Halls Association leaders from those groups came together and decided that there needed to be a uh, centralized student government that represented all students instead of the fragmented um, constituencies. And so uh, as a result, um, they voted to uh, place a tax on the student body. Um, And so it became a tax collecting entity that represented students as a whole to the administration. And that started in 1964. Now, uh, today, ASMSU is entirely student run? Or do you have uh, some like uh, adult representatives also helping out? Well, uh, we're all students at, at ASMSU. Um, every employee is a student employee um, through ASMSU. We have uh, six vice presidents, a chief of staff, around 30 to 40 uh, student employees, uh, a handful of interns. We also have uh, general assembly representatives who are all undergraduates from each college and all the major governing groups, uh, four class councils, and uh, we have uh, some business office manager, we have a business office manager, excuse me, uh, named Eric, who's actually a university employee. Uh, He's a graduate of Northern Michigan University, and he was actually the student body president there, and he acts as uh, um, an advisor to us, as well as helping us process a lot of the payments through the university system. So he is uh, the only non-student employee that we have. Sure. Now, uh, you mentioned the General Assembly. Um, so what's kind of their role at ASMSU? Well, they're the leaders of ASMSU. Uh, they help decide uh, the direction of the policies that we'll be taking, issues we'll be advocating for, new projects that we'll be starting. Um, so they help uh, put in, they give us input uh, in terms of uh, what projects were the office of the president um, is tossing around. They help uh, if we ever have a question on policy, they have to vote on it before we officially advocate for it. Um, they're the real decision makers of the of our organization. In addition to, uh, they actually elect the office of the president themselves as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I just think the representatives are based on population per college, right. so um, and they are responsible for dealing with their constituents and then bringing the concerns of the student body to us as an organization. Mm-hmm. Right now, for the the class councils. What's their role at ASMSU? So the class councils are a little bit offset from ASMSU, and they deal specifically with their college as a whole. So they're tasked with um, providing services, bringing speakers, things of that regard to represent the freshman, sophomore, junior, or senior class. Um, They kind of have the liberty and the freedom to do fit as they see, I guess, and make sure that they're representing the the, – 
like year as a whole as in terms of a college. So back to the the General Assembly. Uh, what kind of legislature has the ASMSU pushed through? Yeah, that's a a pretty good question. Um, a perfect example is last night uh, we had a handful of bills. Um, one was to allocate uh, some of our budget um, to uh, Mental Health Awareness Week and funding a lot of the projects that we'll be doing through that. Um, but in the past, uh, notable legislation that we've had this year is supporting the It's On Us Sexual Assault Awareness Week, um, which was November 17th to the 21st, which uh, we began advocating for greater resources for survivors of sexual assault on campus, as well as bringing awareness to the um, the issue and uh, working on educational events. Um, and we also uh, passed, we passed legislation regarding our code, uh, passed legislation on issues on campus, provide feedback um, on a lot of the issues that the university is dealing with right now. Um, I mean, we've, uh, in the past, we've advocated for creating new services at ASMSU, a lot of the things that we offer, um, such as iClickers, um, the service that we offer started as bills from the General Assembly and became integrated services. Mm-hmm. Now, what are some of those other services that you have? Yep, uh, great question. So we offer uh, the Readership Program, which gives uh, USA Today, uh, the Detroit Free Press, and the New York Times uh, to all undergraduate students around campus. You can see them around every residence hall in front of the union and in student services. We also offer legal services to undergraduate students. Um, actually, COGS, uh, the Council of Graduate Students, has an agreement with them as well, and they offer legal services for graduate students as well. Um, beyond that, uh, we offer representation. We do advocacy. We have blue books and eye clickers, um, and we uh, represent uh, the student body to academic governance um, committees and have one-third of the representing seats um, on all committees, university committees, so we provide the student voice there. Anything I'm leaving out? Loads. Or the the big one, I think. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, does ASMSU work with any of the other student governments on campus, like the hall governments, uh, like yeah. all the neighborhood-based governments? Yep. So I'm glad that you bring that up. Uh, so we're was we're ramping up for Mental Health Awareness Week. Uh, when the, it's on us, the sexual assault uh, sexual assault awareness week. We partnered with uh, student groups around uh, the university, whether it be SASE, which is a sexual assault crisis intervention team, or RHA. Uh, right now, we're working on a project. Uh, we have space at the MSU Student Union. Um, we as ASMSU on the fourth floor, and we're trying to uh, give office space to, or we're going to. We have a plan to uh, have a collaborative and office space with all the major governing groups. So all the Greek uh, groups, so IFC, Panhellenic Council, uh, Multicultural Greek and National Panhellenic Council, we have space there. RHA uh, and ASMSU have space there. Uh, beyond that, um, with Mental Health Awareness Week, we have IFC and Panhellenic Council playing in, integral roles uh, in getting the word out. When we had uh, It's On Us, they were able to help get the word out, put uh, posters around campus, put posters in their houses, in front of their houses. Uh, we did a medical amnesty event where we sent uh, Greek groups uh, our codes from Uber, um, offering safe rides home. Uh, as well as gift baskets and information. So we rely a lot on work with uh, other student groups quite a bit. COGS is a great partner. Uh, they partner with us on a lot of the university committees that we have and moving a lot of projects forward too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we also last year uh, created Spartan Council, which is all of the major governing groups. So we meet monthly to discuss how we can collaborate amongst each other and help each other out. Sure. Now, uh, where does the, the funding come for ASMSU? So we have uh, per student per semester tax that the undergraduate students pay. We pay it with as a part of their tuition bill. Um, however, it's not part of tuition. Uh, students have the ability to get this back as a refund. However, consistently uh, with the yearbooks we offer, the legal services, uh, the guy clickers and readership program that we offer, uh, students overwhelmingly uh, voted to renew our tax last year as well as uh, the um, almost all student, undergraduate students pay the tax and don't get a refund. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how we're funded. Um, we're entirely so – we're actually the only student government in the Big Ten, and uh, we're an anomaly across the country in terms of student governments because we're entirely funded by student tax dollars. Uh, no other student government that I know of is funded that way, especially not in the Big Ten, which gives us a lot of autonomy um, on the issues that we're facing. Um, we're one of the largest student governments in terms of our budget. Uh, we have about a $1.6 million budget or 1.5, depending on the year. Um, and we're able to spend that entirely on uh, student activities. Uh, we're the only student government in the Big Ten that supports completely the uh, 
there are registered student organizations as well as the Council of Progressive and Racial Ethnic Students uh, groups on campus. Mm-hmm. Now, aside from the, the student tax that you pull mm-hmm. in, do you get funding from anywhere else, from the, the university, from fundraising, donations, or is it solely through the student No, we're, in, uh, we're entirely supported by the student body, and we feel that that's uh, a valuable tool in helping us represent our constituents accurately and very well. Mm-hmm. Actually, the only part of ASFSU that's allowed to do fundraising is senior class council, and they do that in terms of paying for their senior gift to sure. the university. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we have this tax vote coming up. Um, well, let's let's do the rundown, kind of when, where, what, what's what's coming up on this tax vote. Yep. So the tax vote that's coming up is uh, the one is for RHA and the other one is for the Impact Radio. Uh, actually, our tax vote uh, for ASMSU uh, was up last uh, year, last April. So every, governing groups um, and tax collecting groups on campus uh, every three years must have their uh, their tax put to a vote to be renewed by the student body. Uh, ASMSU's tax has been renewed renewed by the student body overwhelmingly each time it's been up. Um, that's a testament to the value of services and the value of advocacy that we provide our students. Um, I, uh, the Impact um, and RHA, they're both uh, great student groups on campus. Um, and uh, their tax is up, and I look forward to um, helping make more aware uh, of the services that are provided through those organizations um, and more aware to the student body that they are uh, up for a vote. Uh, and uh, where will students be voting? Um, so they can vote online. Um, there will be a link to the website uh, through ASMSU um, when the voting for rep elections. The uh, week of the election is April 6th through 13th. Um, and students can vote online um, basically 24 hours any of those days of the week. And uh, so for the students that are listening out there, mm-hmm. why should they go out and vote? What, what's, uh, I guess, your message to the students out there for why it's important for them to go out and vote? Sure. Um, it's important because uh, ASMSU, um, once again, is uh, alone in terms of student governments across the country in that it provides um, it has an integral voice in what the university does. So like I said earlier, we have one-third of the decision-making seats on university committees. We also uh, are able to be strong advocates. A great example is with the It's On Us Week when we advocated for for resources for sexual assault survivors. We were able to uh, successfully advocate for a new counseling position for survivors of sexual assault in addition to three uh, – more hirings of uh, vacant positions in the counseling center. And so it's that type of advocacy that um, only comes from an active student body and an engaged student body. And so I urge students to vote because they want their voice to be heard. Um, If they they want resources on campus that don't exist, they have input to decisions that are being made, uh, they can make that directly um, and they can have a direct influence over what's happening on their campus. And I strongly urge students to vote in this election. Yeah, I would just, oh, sorry. I would say in terms of the impact in the RHA vote, the the biggest philosophy is your voice, your vote. And it's the best way mm-hmm. to get involved would be to just get out there and, and vote. I'd agree. So anything else you'd like to add about anything we discussed today? Um, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm excited uh, where ASMSU is going. Um, I'm excited for the work that we've done this year in terms of advocacy. Uh, in terms of relationship building around the university with different student groups as well as administration. Uh, and I look forward to continuing that in the next couple of months, and I, I think uh, Catherine would feel the same way. Yeah, definitely, and we'd love to have more students involved, so reach yeah, out to us if definitely. you're interested. And remember to vote is April 6th through the 13th, and you can go to asmsu.msu.edu for more information. All right, well, James and Catherine, thank you for coming in today. Hey, thank, thank you for, you for having us. us. Up next, we go to Impact reporter Audrey Matus as she narrates the new normal. It's 6 a.m. on a freezing Friday morning in February. 55 lethargic MSU students are bundled up inside a Michigan flyer and are about to depart to arguably one of the least exotically named towns in the world, Normal, Illinois. Midwest Bisexual, Lesbian, Gay, Transgender, Ally College Conference, Mimbletech for short, is the largest LGBTQIA conference in the nation. This year, the conference was hosted by Illinois State University 
And to play off the college town's name, the centric idea of this year's conference was narrating a new normal. Uh, what I really enjoy about the conference theme is that for one weekend, we are creating a new normal for 3,000 students who live outside of the box, have to live with their identity in silence, and have to, they have to assimilate. There was a normal library and a normal police department. This small town sort of sits in a category of its own. The people of Normal in recent years have actually been really making an effort to promote a more progressive-minded environment, especially in the representation of the LGBTQIA community. Similarly, this Memble Tech conference is pushing to establish a new normal in the view of gender and sexuality in society, as well as redefining LGBTQ plus membership. Starting with how we introduce ourselves to one another. My name is Michael Gardner. Uh, my preferred pronouns are he, him, his as well as how we identify. I identify as a queer, fat, femme, polyamorous, pansexual person. And with this notion, I went about the conference asking, How would you define normal? God. I don't know. It's kind of complicated. Like, I feel like it's not really a concept that exists. Anything within one standard deviation of the mean? I don't know. I don't like the definition of normal. I just want to live in an equitable society where... People don't have to have those hidden identities. Okay, so it seems like this word that we have packed all this meaning into that determines what is good from what is other has no singular definition when it comes to the people it pertains to. Which may be questioned if a standard of normalcy can even be established in a large group of people, even when that community of people have a similar aspiration for their society. Do you think a new normal needs to be defined or redefined in the LGBT community? Um, yeah, we honestly kind of talked about this in our um, gay uh, identity pan panel. Um, we, we kind of found that gays like to segregate themselves into their own little groups. That's like, Michael Brown, a student from the University of Indiana. Twinks stay with twinks, bears stay with bears, otters with otters, um, things like that. Within the gay community, these terms are used to describe men based on appearance, masculinity, and overall personality. So where the issue comes in, like Michael was saying, is that people begin to only socialize and date with whom they identify with. So we were trying to, you know, think of like maybe more of a community, like stop fighting each other so that we can fight the people we need to fight. We as people have a really bad habit of constructing our perceptions of people by projecting stereotypes on others so we can quickly categorize them into groups and decide if we're cool with them or not, which right away inhibits us from making a unified community but we like to reduce things into boxes. So. Natalie Stark is a student at Ohio State University. She loves math, as reflected in the various formulas tattooed on her wrist, as well as her femininity. I met Natalie in a discussion panel about the complicated politics of makeup. The big takeaway from this panel for me was that applying makeup goes deeper than beauty, especially in the queer community, as is a tool used for self-expression. This whole discussion introduced me to another group within the LGBTQIA community called Femme. Um, femme is a term that refers to femininely presented uh, people within the queer community. Like makeup and stuff is traditionally considered very femme, but it, you don't necessarily have to use makeup or all the time or even ever to be considered femme. So I'm, I'm a trans woman. One of the things that I found very empowering was sort of coming into this identity as someone who is hard femme. It's like it is doing my makeup really fiercely and wearing like jeans and a like ratty t-shirt, and that works for me, and I like it. A student from Northern Michigan University who presented and led the makeup discussion panel also identifies as femme, among other things. Yeah, my name is Stephanie Vargas Harlan. I use she, her, and hers for my pronouns. I identify as a queer, fat, femme, polyamorous, pansexual person, which is a lot of identifiers there. It's not something that I would normally say outside of a Mimbletech context, um, but in this kind of space I get to use all my identity labels and be really open about them. Stephanie is an activist and goes to college campuses' events like Mimbletech to educate on the complexities of identity, be it through makeup or body type. A queer, fat, femme, polyamorous, pansexual person. Her reasoning for using this string of identities to introduce herself is to show how a person is not just one thing. Things she identifies as all are intertwined and are impacted by the other. Natalie, the hard femme transgender woman I spoke to earlier, says she uses makeup to protect her identity. Yeah, it's definitely a tool. Um, at times, it's armor. Um, there is a lot of oppression 
um, that trans women have to face, and especially trans women of color. What Natalie is talking about when she says being a femme trans woman of color is especially difficult is similar to why Stephanie is so upfront with her various identities. This concept is called intersectionality, and it is a study of how multiple systems of oppression like racism, transphobia, sexism, etc., are all applicable and can't be examined separately in a case like someone's identity. The intersectionality of being a trans woman of color was a very serious topic at this year's Mimbletech conference. Because trans women of color are dying in droves, there have been believe, five murders already this year of trans women of color. In 2015 alone, there has been six reports of trans women homicide in the United States, five of those slain being women of color. And it's an epidemic and it's horrible. Many trans and queer activists of color are unsettled by the lack of attention trans women homicide has had, and not just the media, but from the black community. However, the students of Illinois State, who coordinated this year's conference, made sure to raise this important issue while narrating a new normal. This year's headlining keynote speaker was Laverne Cox, widely known for playing an incarcerated African-American transgender woman named Sophia in the Netflix hit series Orange is the New Black. She is the first trans woman of color to have a leading role on a mainstream scripted television show, and her empowering message of moving beyond gender expectations has made her one of the most influential LGBTQIA figures in the country. Laverne couldn't complete a string of sentences without thousands of snaps and cheers from the enthusiastic audience. What I loved so much about her speech was that I didn't feel like she was just there to get us all rubbed up so we could charge out into the world, lavender blood pumping through our veins. She was educating us. Laverne talked a lot about transphobic crime and gave her own personal examples for why she believes gender is a social construct in our society. Laverne's narration of her journey to womanhood ignited an energy within thousands of college students to make the United States a symbol of progress. Another important theme at the Mimbletech conference was unlearning the phrase, A is for our allies, which was a tagline originally said in a campaign by the LGBTQ rights organization, GLAAD. However, many in the LGBTQ community recognized that emphasizing the role of straight people in the movement only encouraged the marginalization of the smaller, less represented A groups for the asexuals, aromantics, and agender people. So with the new normal that A is for asexual, where does that put the heterosexual cisgender people who want to be part of the community? First, let me explain that cisgender describes a person who identifies as the gender they were assigned at birth. Okay, so do straight people deserve to be included in the LGBTQ plus community? Brittany Henson, a graduate student at ISU, led a discussion group for ally delegates at the conference. To be an ally within the community is really to know the community that you are within. It's to recognize your own privilege. It's to recognize your own biases. Both in Students who identified as allies talked about what the role of an ally should be, especially for allies who do not experience oppression regarding their sexual orientation. The Young Allies uses safe space as an opportunity to express concern for the equality of heterosexual allies within the LGBTQ community. In response, Brittany said that she didn't like to use the term equality. Because that, for me, that means I'm using my privilege and assuming that I know what is best for you, how I can best help you. Instead, I really like the term equitable because it helps me to meet the individual where they are and how I can use my privilege to help that individual person. Because as we learn, every single person within the community has had a different experience based on their identity, based on their life experiences. So what I think to create an equal society may not encompass everybody within the community. Instead, I use my privilege to equitably meet a person where they are. Many straight allies are realizing, hey, this really isn't about us. As a heterosexual, cisgender female, Brittany does not wish to be considered part of the LGBTQIA community. I like how someone said it, to consider myself a branch of the community, because I can, I am an activist. I am a person who uses my voice to give others a voice, but... I can pass if I want. I can go through my days if I want and let microaggressions occur to not stand up. And so I think to claim a spot in the community 
means that I have to fully commit to being an ally. And that's something I'm working on. And so until I get to that point, I will not say I'm part of the community. So in order to make a more unified community, some divisions need to be made on who is in and who's out. For example, a similar approach had to be taken in the Black Civil Rights Movement. Dr. King led marches consisting of people of many races. However, the liberal whites who supported and fought for the liberation of African Americans did not use that to justify why they should be part of the black community. For the LGBTQ community, constructing a new normal that broadens its definitions of gay, defends intersectionalities, and rejects policing within groups, I think heterosexual allies like myself need to take a back seat. By using the privilege allies have in society, we can assist in helping narrate a newer, less constrictive, and more educated normal. I'd like to thank all the MSU Alliance eBoard members for allowing me to go on this special trip, Egan Zimmerman for our assistance in collecting interviews, and all the brave students who are willing to bear their identities for my story. For Impact News, I'm Audrey Matus. We'll next go to my interview with Ignacio Andrade from the Office for Inclusion Intercultural Initiatives, uh, who I first met when I went to go see Congressman John Lewis speak at the Kellogg Center here on campus. We'll be discussing Project 6050 as well as the DREAM Act. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89FM. I'm here with Ignacio Andrade, representing the Michigan State Office for Inclusion and Intercultural Initiatives. Thank you for coming in today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, uh, what do you do at the Office for Inclusion and Intercultural Initiatives? Um, I work in the community outreach unit of the office, and the Office for Inclusion has about uh, 15 staff that uh, work there full-time, and then we have some uh, part-time students that uh, support the team uh, and the efforts that we have going on across campus and out in the community at large. So for me, I have a focus on community outreach, um, developing, building bridges with students in particular on campus, but also extending out to staff, faculty organizations, as well as uh, I get to work from time to time with the larger campus, off-campus community. Now, uh, for our listeners out there who are unfamiliar, uh, what is Project 6050? Right. Project 6050, if you haven't heard of it yet, you may uh, be seeing it in a billboard around you or in a TV station or radio station. And when you hear it, I want you to know the mission. The mission of Project 6050 is to link academic exploration and study with public commemoration and remembrance, intertwined with the wide range of cultural expressions focused on civil and human rights. Project 6050 was launched last year at this time to commemorate two profound events in U.S. history, the 60th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision in Brown v. Board of Education and the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So is this something that you plan on making a reoccurring event over the next few years? It looks like the success of Project 6050 in its inaugural year was such that the community really supported it. Again, this is not something that we could get behind um, and do on our own. We, we need to have the community because it's that important. Our mission within the Office for Inclusion uh, deals directly with infusing in inclusion across the campus, right? Inclusivity across the campus being that one of the three core values of Michigan State University is inclusivity. Our mission is directly aligned with that. And so when we try to infuse inclusion across the campus, we can't do that alone. This is one of the biggest campuses, um, not only in the Midwest, but throughout the nation. And so we need all the help that we can get. And and the reality is if one entity uh, continually owns this it, it, and it's not something that is bought into that is supported that is all across the campus really something that people are looking to to be able to serve as a resource uh, serve as an outlet serve as both a, a way to deal with issues as they come up but also uh be proactive and prevent issues from happening in the first place. If that is not embraced by the bigger campus and off-campus community, really, um, then it's hard for that type of work to be able to uh, make headway. And so we really are looking forward going 
into year two of Project 6050 to be able to increase the partnerships that we have on campus um, and off campus as well as we do this work. Students throughout history uh, in the civil rights movement have been the impetus, the spark, so to speak, that has launched many of the modern day civil rights uh, move, uh, laws that we have or, or initiatives that we have experienced and benefit from here today. So without students throughout history, we would not be where we are today. Is Project 6050 found only here at Michigan State, or is this a program that's you know, found across the, the nation at other universities? Right now, it is found only at Michigan State in this inaugural year, uh, but we have had interest from other universities uh, across the nation um, that like what it stands for, like the work that it's highlighting, and understand the importance of this type of work, not only for our campuses as universities and colleges, but also for our communities. And so um, I think there's a, a quote uh, or a saying tagline, if you will, um, that I saw printed on a magnet a while back here from the city of East Lansing and, and MSU. And uh, it was a partnership, speaking to a partnership. And, and it, the tagline was, we all live here whether we live on campus or off campus, whether we work on campus and then live off campus, we are all connected. And so when we realize that and really begin to embrace that, then we can really begin to make progress in areas that are positive for everybody in our community. Now, uh, tonight, actually, uh, as we speak tonight, we have the MSU uh, debate team who are uh, they're currently debating uh, the DREAM Act. Um, so could you kind of give me an explanation of what the DREAM Act is and its current standing here in the U.S.? Sure, sure. As you indicated, um, the DREAM Act in conversation, uh, the debate that's happening uh, tonight as we speak, um, is part of over 200 events that we've already had. So we've already had over 200 conversations and activities to date, engaging thousands of people on a range of issues, including racial healing, economic and environmental justice, education equity, marriage equality, elder rights, girls and body image, religious freedom, and then immigration, of course, with the event that's going on as we speak uh, in the studio. So immigration in particular, the debate tonight is a focus on immigration and the DREAM Act, whether or not uh, the DREAM Act should become a reality. It's a partnership with the MSU award-winning, I should say, award-winning MSU debate team and um, the Office for Inclusion and several other partners. And so that includes the work of Project 6050, of course, but also um, Michigan United, Action of Greater Lansing, the Julian Samora Research Institute here at MSU, MSU Office of Admissions, and of course, uh, MSU Debate Team. So that's tonight uh, as we speak. And uh, the Brody Auditorium is where it's located, uh, room 112 in Brody Auditorium uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. Now, what are some of the, the main points that the debate team is going to be arguing over the DREAM Act? Well, the beauty of working with the debate team, and this is, um, I believe, the second time we have worked with the debate team, um, or the debate team has had a Project 6050 event, so to speak. And uh, the beauty of working with the debate team is they are students from MSU that research a topic and they argue their case, both pros and cons of a particular topic. That sets the stage for all those in the audience to be able to um, bring their knowledge, their experience uh, of that particular topic, hear it aired out all in front of them, left, right, and center, and um, the pros and cons of passing, in this case, the DREAM Act, uh, becoming a reality, the pros and cons of that, um, both economic uh, advantages, um, the perceived um, disadvantages or perceived advantages from, from um, the perspectives of folks not only across the nation, but also here locally, and how it impacts individuals, communities, uh, right in our own community that we're talking about here. So students that you know, uh, people that you know, people that I know are literally being impacted or could be impacted as well um, in a positive way or if, it, if something like this uh, DREAM Act was to be implemented uh, in a negative way and on both sides of, of it. So depending on your stance, um, really your stance is not as important. What the focus is is being able to um, share information, 
learn, hear from different perspectives, and be able to uh, explore some of that additional um, educational opportunity that is being provided in a safe uh, format. After the debate, there is an opportunity to engage the student debaters uh, from the audience. Then we transition over into a panel presentation, and that panel presentation is made up of professionals and, and uh, that work across in this area in some capacity and can speak from a different perspective about uh, immigration reform, um, the DREAM Act more specifically. And so then we finish it up with a question and answer period uh, from the audience. So we get to discuss broadly what's happening in that context, both nationally and locally. And, and so um, we really hope that the community uh, sees this as one of many opportunities to come to the table, whether you agree with one another or not. The real important part of it is being able to have what your views are expressed in a safe space in a respectful manner and be able to share those and also uh, hear from other folks with maybe similar or, or completely different views. And that's the type of environment that we want to cultivate through Project 6050. Now, uh, uh, back to the DREAM Act. Uh, what would that mean for Michigan State and for the Office for Inclusion if the DREAM Act were to be passed by Congress? Right. Well, um, I guess it's important to indicate, you know, first the DREAM Act, for those of our listeners that are not familiar, um, is the Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors. Um, it was first introduced, American legislative proposal first introduced in the Senate back in 2001. So we're talking about 14 years <laughs> ago, right? So just to kind of bring it up to speed, um, the bill would provide conditional permanent residency to certain immigrants of good moral character who graduate from U.S. high schools, arrived in the US, United States as minors, and lived in the country continuously for at least five years prior to the bill's enactment. If they were to complete two years in the military or two years at a four-year institution of higher learning, they would obtain temporary residency for a six-year period. Within the six-year period, they may qualify for permanent residency if they have, quote-unquote, acquired a degree from an institution of higher education in the United States or have completed at least two years in good standing in a program for a bachelor's degree or higher, ed higher degree in the United States. So... This also, uh, or you can also uh, have served in the armed services for at least two years and have discharged, of course, receive an honorable discharge. So these are, are some of the, um, the initial pieces of the DREAM Act when it was introduced back in 2001. Um, th this has been an is initiative over the last 14 years, and several states have had uh, introduced and passed their own versions of the DREAM Act, sometimes having the word dream incorporated into it. So it can become confusing sometimes. <laughs> so if you have heard that there is the dream act has passed, it's important to know that no, it has not the official dream act, the federal uh, dream act, that legislation that was pa uh, introduced back in 2001 has not passed uh, 14 years later, but those are some of the aspects of it. So um, really what it gets down to is being able to um, help students who were, brought here to the United States as children themselves in the case of one of the students uh, that um, we have worked with and are familiar with. Um, she is from here, the local community. She grew up in, uh, and attended a local high school as a senior uh, attending local high school and has been here since she's two years old. And so being that she's been here that long, she really knows no other country. This is her home country. But because she wasn't born here, she doesn't have, she's not considered a U.S. citizen, and therefore her status is in question as far as uh, the rights and benefits that she is eligible for. So first and foremost, uh, depending on the state that you're in, but here in, in Michigan, uh, you would initially be considered as an international student, even though you haven't lived abroad maybe since right after your birth or since a young child. And you would still be labeled as an international student and be, excuse me, subject to uh, international fees, international student fees. Uh, many times these students are not financially in a position to pay for college in all on their own from their family's position. And so this would be, um, even if they were deemed as um, 
in-state students, it would be difficult to pay. So if you have the out-of-state international fees, um, it would be uh, almost really impossible to be able to, for some families, of course, uh, almost impossible to be able to pay for that. And so you have quite a few universities across the nation that have um, been able to not only offer admission to these highly qualified, qualified students. I mean, you have students that sometimes are valedictorian of their high school and obviously highly qualified, but because of their status, are limited with their options. So there are universities across the nation that will offer, are able to offer uh, not only admission, but also a financial aid mm-hmm. um, that they, under the status now, they are not eligible for federal uh, and many times state financial aid as well. So the only thing they can do uh, is provide uh, the scholarships straight from the university. And so that would be an uh, ideal situation, but oftentimes we don't have all unlimited resources. And so um, until policies change or um, there's an effort at a statewide level, like in other states, um, and or at a university level here, um, like at other universities, including some in Michigan, um, there would still be a, a big hurdle for students that are very well qualified, uh, academically uh, s- strong that are enrolling or applying and being accepted to universities to ever attend simply because they can't afford it. And so we don't want to uh, marginalize high-achieving students in a continued fashion that we have uh, specifically because they can't afford it. In the United States at this point in time, education is a priority for many, uh, and for many others it's even more of a priority. And so what we want to do is be able to capitalize on the both uh, hard work and potential of all folks in the United States. And one way that we can do that is by uh, legislation uh, along the lines of the DREAM Act. And so that's what many folks across the nation are advocating for. Of course, in the context uh, on the opposite side of that, many folks are uh, against that. And so it's important to have the discussion in educated ways that communicate the facts about the situation. And that's what we're really after within Project 6050 is not advocating for one side or the other of a particular issue that we named off earlier, but really about providing an opportunity, a platform to discuss these issues uh, and get the facts out there, have alternative perspectives shared in front of you and interact with those uh, people. And, And it can really not only change the amount of information you have on any particular subject, but it can also uh, build a, a, a more substantial relationship with individuals that are strangers prior that can become closer and become uh, less of a stranger and more of a neighbor. And so that's what we're really trying to do with this. Regardless of the issue um, that we're talking about, we're trying to be able to provide that platform for folks to come together in, in a civil um safe environments to be able to have these important discussions because they really are affecting, they re- these dis- issues are really civil and human rights, and they're really affecting all of us in the, across this nation, whether we stop, slow down enough to realize it, or, or if we're um, some of those of us that are out there on a regular basis working on these issues, um, they affect all of us. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for coming in today, Ignacio. Thank you very much for having me. We'll be finishing off the show tonight with Quinn Hoffman and Impact reporter Sarah Tirico as they discuss the rebirth of our new segment, Michigan Storytellers, followed by a story done by Rebecca Small. I'm uh, Quinn Hoffman, the news director here at The Impact. And I'm Sarah Tirico. I work at The Impact 2 for News Team. And we're here to talk about the rebirth of the Michigan Storyteller segment. We're bringing it back. Bringing it back. Uh, so a while ago, we had this segment, and uh, it was about essentially just people, students, uh, Michiganders telling stories on the radio, true stories um, about their lives or something they've experienced. Um, and it was discontinued for a little bit. Uh, we had focused a little bit more on like poetry readings and other things like that, but now we want to rebirth it and refocus it strictly towards these true stories. What, what are we looking for, Sarah? Um, yeah, so Quinn and I have talked about this for a while, and we're finally debuting it. But we're really excited to 
Um, offer this show as kind of an outlet for the community to tell their own stories. I think um, so often I, as an avid radio listener, wish that I could jump in and kind of contribute, um, you know, my own two cents. And this show is all about your own two cents. So we really want to hear like, like big, st- like, hmm. Both big and right. little. Right, like we have a good variety going on right now, um, and you're gonna hear you're gonna hear one of our first stories in a little bit. But if you feel like you have something that other people would find interesting or worth worthwhile, they'll find something in it. Um, go ahead and shoot me or Quinn or e- an email. It's our both of our emails are up on the website. Um, www.impact right nine fm yep org there we go. That one. Um, I'm sure if you just Google Impact, um, it'll come up too. And yeah, so uh, I don't know if anyone's ever heard like the the Moth Radio Hour, or I think earlier Sarah mentioned uh, StoryCorps. StoryCorps. Yeah. Um, these are like these storytelling segments that we're kind of emulating here in a way. Um, Sarah, do you have any like favorite stories from any of these other storytelling podcasts? Yeah, the one that you and I were talking about earlier, the the snake wrangling guy. Um, I actually played that for one of the one of the storytellers that I had in the studio, just because it's such a good example. But basically, this is a good example of um, a story that's not necessarily like, "Hey, here's my life story. It's really deep. Here's you know how I feel about everything right, in the right. world." But it was this guy, and he was blind, and he was like, you know what? I turned blind. Like, I went blind early. Like, I lost my sight. So I decided, like, I'm going to travel, and I'm just going to, like, exhilarate my other senses. So he went on, like, what was it? Like a rattlesnake snake hunt up or, or something. something. Like, yeah. something ridiculous they that like, only Texas they like, people would do. Yeah, they get a whole bunch of rattlesnakes together, and they do all the things you can do. Like, catch a rattlesnake, and then they, they, they sell rattlesnake skin, like, boots and stuff yeah but the point was was like there were just rattles everywhere like he went for that like audio experience of like these rattles and then the whole time he's like oh swear word like (laughs) i can't see these and i can hear them like that sounded cool in the beginning and now i'm surrounded by them so i really like that one and and i kind of use that as an example um to contrast um there was a one about a uh counselor a high school counselor who was kind of recapping his experience with a high school shooting that had happened to him and obviously that's just incredibly deep and emotional and serious um and so that kind of grabs you and those kinds of things can really do uh powerful things in the story but yeah like sarah was saying it doesn't have to be that kind of stuff so we were looking for unscripted true stories about people um but the cool thing about this is that it's local so it's it's our school and it's about you know people here so it's a lot easier to get on for one um cuz it's coming out of a smaller mm-hmm. pool so if you've ever wanted to maybe send a story to the moth this is a great place to start um <laughs> we can come in here and you can record and um it'll be broadcasted here um but yeah uh we're And just... I also think it's really cool that it is so based and grounded in community. Um and that was kind of the goal of the original show as well. Like I like this idea of I can be going to my math class at like eight AM, you know, and there could be a guy in there like whose life I just heard about last night on the radio. Yeah. Like that's a cool like when you hear these stories, like those people are walking around like oh, geez. down I, Grand I never River. even thought about that. That's kinda <laughs> yeah. It's kinda Ooh, awesome. We have our stories like coming out too, so know that Yeah, no, yeah. People me are gonna Sarah. know Quinn. Yeah, me and Sarah are going to come out with our own stories, and uh, you guys will take a little look into our lives as well. But uh, we're hoping to hear more from the community, more from everyone else. We already have a few people, but uh, yeah, we're looking to, you know, as many stories as we can get. So we want to hear from you. Yeah. Especially like if you're worried that your story is not cool. Like it's probably pretty cool. It's probably and like sweet. the fact that you like, like listen to Impact. Like, you know, what is that called in statistics where, like, you only attract, like, a certain amount of people to, like, answer your survey? Like, this is, like, by listening to the radio, like, you're we're already kind of weeding out the cool people. Right, right. You know what I mean? We're telling you you're cool if right. you're listening. So right. please contact us. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, we're going to play for you uh, our first story here. And you can look forward to this uh, Tuesday nights on Exposure at the end of the show. 
Uh, we'll be dropping stories in periodically through the uh, lifespan of the show. But uh, yeah, I guess take a listen. And again, if you guys are at all interested, if you think you've got a story to tell or you know someone who has a story to tell, all the contact info will be up on the post on the page. Absolutely. We hope to hear from you. Without further ado, we go to Rebecca Small with her story, Steve Happens. So, it was my 17th birthday, and I was at the birthday party of my coworker's daughter, who was turning two. It wasn't her birthday. Her birthday was two days before, but the party was on mine, so I went anyway. Um, I was there with a few people I know, and they introduced me to a guy named Mike. Mike was incredibly burly and very tall and very intimidating. But after the party, when we were all standing around the fire, it came up that I was Steve Small's little sister. He heard the name and froze where he stood, looking more terrified than I've ever seen anyone look. And he repeated, he was like, Steve Small? That's that's your older brother. I was like, yeah, that's him. He's like, we've been sitting here this whole time, and you're Steve Small's little sister. And I confirmed. And he just looked so surprised. And we got to talking about my brother and about his interactions with him. And he told me about the, the parties at my house that were family parties that he just happened to be at. Um, about 10 years ago, where my brother would be in the basement with him and with their other friends, telling them all about he, how he broke someone's nose with a crowbar or something, you know, equally violent. And he told me about the time that him and my brother and their friend Dave would go into Meyer, and he and Dave would start a fight so that all the workers were distracted while Steve made off with, you know, a few cases of beer, which then they would, after, go get drunk with and end up in the middle of Milford at 5 in the morning. And Steve would disappear and leave them in the park for them to walk home the next day because that's just kind of guy he is. And he told me about the way Steve was back then 10 years ago when I was only 10 and clueless and sort of out of everything that was really going on. And he just looked at me at the end of the bonfire. It's probably pretty high at this point. And he said, Steve, his hands are stone. And I looked at him and I, I didn't know what he meant, but I kind of understood him. I nodded, and I was like, yeah, they are. That's a pretty good way of putting it. And he he just kind of sat there and thought, and so did I. And everyone else continued on with their conversation, and I went home. And then six months later, I am working at the public library, putting away about 10,000, you know, little kid DVDs, And they all fall off of the cart that I'm pushing and land on the ground. And he shows up behind me and just goes, oh, shit happens. And I nod, and I don't really notice who he is until we both stand up. And I can't place who it is until he says, so I saw your brother the other week. And then I realize, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's nice. Because I've heard a lot of people say stuff like that. Oh, your brother. Oh, and I'm like, great. That's okay. (laughs) Cool. And he moves on. He goes on to do whatever he was doing. Um, And we see each other a few more times. And one of the last times he comes up to me and I tell him about how his line that, that Steve's hands were stone, how it stuck with me. And he, he tells me that he saw Steve a few weeks ago, and, and he did shake his hand. And he says, it's still stone. And, and then he says, I want to try something. And I'm very confused, but I'm like, okay. 
and he shakes my hand. And he makes this sort of like waving of the hand and shrug motion. And he's like, eh, it's not quite, not quite stone. And I kind of laugh because, yeah, sometimes it happens, but, but sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes you just get to meet someone who understands you without making any sense. If you have a story to share yourself, contact Quinn or Sarah with information found on our website at impact89fm.org. Rebecca's story and all episodes of Exposure can also be found online at impact89fm.org. Special thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Gabriela Saldivia, our producer, Quinn Hoffman, and Sarah Tarico for leading Michigan Storytellers. You've been listening to Exposure, Michigan State's student-run news program here on Impact 89 FM every Tuesday from 7 to 8 p.m. with your host, Dana Rizal. Bring your purple bathing suit Depends on where we're going to If we're going to the swimming hole We won't need nothing at all Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Impact Exposure.